Isaiah chapter 7 in your Old Testament scriptures. And we will read from verses 1 through 17. We're going to look at a selection of passages in Isaiah over the Advent season that focus on the coming of our Lord. Several of them even give attention to the coming of children as signs of the coming of the Lord. So that will be our Advent focus this season. And today we'll begin with Isaiah 7. And listen now as I read verses 1 through 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah He will bring the king of Assyria. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can gather together again today after again perhaps days of rejoicing and enjoying your good gifts. Thank you that we can be together as the people of God and hear your word read and proclaimed. And we pray now for your help that you would fill me with your spirit to preach well and that you would bless the congregation to hear that our eyes would be open, that we would rejoice in what we read, that we'd understand it, that we'd give thanks and 
glory to you for your truth, for the story you're telling, and that we would respond with faith and obedience, that you would use this time of worship today to shape us into the image of God to make us more like our Savior. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today marks the first Sunday in Advent. I know we just had Thanksgiving. Feels like a, a quick turn of the page. Some of you perhaps were still uh, celebrating and, and gathering with family yesterday. But today is the first of four Sundays before Christmas, uh, with Christmas itself occurring on a Sunday this year. So it's four weeks from today, so you can consider yourself officially warned. You've got 28 days. If it sneaks up on you, don't blame me. I warned you. So, uh, but often Christians will build anticipation for the celebration of Christmas by devoting the weeks leading up to it to focusing on themes related to the first and second comings of Christ. The, the word Advent itself means coming or presence. And we don't just do this to hype up the event, it's to focus our attention on the Lord's presence with us. Now that's a truth we can and should celebrate all year round, but but it gets a special focus this time of year. So we want to draw our attention to that idea of God with us. So what exactly does that mean for God to be with us. Well, that phrase, God with us, it's taken from the passage we've read this morning from verse 14. This is a promise that comes to God's people during a time of crisis. And that's usually when we feel our need for God to be with us. And one of the questions that Isaiah repeatedly asks us is, who do you trust? Ultimately, when disaster comes, do we trust in God or in our own resources, in our own ingenuity or in God's power and wisdom, in our own rightness or in God's grace and mercy and plan. And as I've said, I want to use this Advent season to look at different passages from the book of Isaiah that build our anticipation for Christmas by focusing on the presence of our Lord, on God coming to his people to rescue them. And as I said, some of these will even directly tie in with the idea of children. One commentator sees here in Isaiah 7 and again in chapters 8 and 9 a focus on children as the signs of God's presence. And since Christmas is the focus on the birth of Christ, it's a good place to focus our attention these first few weeks. So let's begin today with Isaiah 7:14, the birth of the son who will be God with us. We'll start our advent season by this promise, focusing on the promise that God is with us. And I want to consider it from two angles. First, when we need God's promise. Let's look at the historical situation that provides the background for this event. Where do we find ourselves in Israel's story when we turn here to Isaiah 7? Well, this is set in the time of King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. And you remember that the Israelite kingdom split after the death of Solomon. You've got the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. Well, this story takes place in the southern 
kingdom. Now, further to the north, you have the Assyrian Empire. And they are aggressively pushing south towards Egypt. Egypt's where they want to get. That's the prize. But in order to get there, they have to go through a few other kingdoms. They have to go through Aram. They have to go through the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim or Samaria in the passage we read today. And they have to go through the southern kingdom of Judah. So that empire is making its way across this land. And in order to head off that threat, two of those kingdoms, Aram and Israel, the northern kingdom, they form a coalition. If they team up, they can resist Assyria. But they say, we also need to get Judah on our side, the southern kingdom. So they are pressuring Judah, join the coalition. In fact, they even go so far as to threaten them and say, look, if you don't join us, we're going to come in and we'll depose King Ahaz. And we'll put our own king on the throne and he will agree to join our coalition. And that coalition has now come to bring that fight to Judah. They're on their doorstep. That's the situation when this story opens. And as you can imagine, the royal family and probably all of Judah with them are very afraid. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah, I want you to take your son with you and go speak to King Ahaz. Go comfort them. And Isaiah appears. He meets King Ahaz at the aqueduct of the upper pool. And what is King Ahaz doing there? He's inspecting the water supply. You've got a coming invasion, maybe a coming siege. It makes sense. Let's make sure that our provisions are in order. And that's where Isaiah meets him and gives him this message from verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. And don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Now, if we put ourselves in Ahaz's shoes or uh, any person living in that area, we might be tempted to say, okay, Isaiah, that's easier said than done. We've got an army on our doorstep. But Isaiah is not to be, you know, thrown by that. He even mockingly calls Aram and Ephraim two smoldering stubs of firewood. In other words, they're the leftovers after a bonfire. Maybe you built a bonfire this week and it burns down and just the stubs are left there smoking. That that's not a powerful image. That's not a strong threat. And Isaiah is trying to say, look, the power of these invading kingdoms, it's almost gone. It may not look that way to you, but that is how God assesses the situation. And in fact, we see a shift of focus in this passage from here's the threat, but let's look at how God sees things. You even notice that in verse 7 where Isaiah says, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. So we know the earthly king's plans. We know they want to come down and depose Ahaz and set up a puppet king to strengthen their coalition. But let's hear God's plan. Let's hear what God has to say. And he says again in verse 7, it will not take place. It will not happen. And that's going to be the theme of this whole passage. God promises to deliver Judah. So how will they respond? Will they trust him to do so? Or they rely on their own plans and their own strength. Now I want to note from verse 8, the way God first promises deliverance may be a little confusing. He says there in verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered 
to be a people. It almost sounds like God is saying, hey, trust me, within 65 years, I'll take care of this. Now, that doesn't seem to offer much hope for the immediate situation, does it? The army is at their door. Can you imagine a modern-day political candidate saying, hey, vote for me, I promise, within 65 years, I'll solve this problem. That doesn't generate a whole lot of excitement, does it? Well, I think what God is doing is he's just priming the pump of faith here. In other words, let's just start Ahaz big picture. These are powerful forces threatening you. And you people are shaken. Verse 2 says they were shaken like the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. You've seen that imagery during a powerful storm. Their hearts were like those trees. And God wants to assure his people. Let's just start with this basic truth. Every earthly power ends, even the enemies at your gate. And that's why God goes through that uh, train of thought there in verses 8 and 9 where he says, you know, the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. In other words, it's a nation, but it's led by this city, which is led by this one person. In other words, in God's eyes, it's not that big of a deal. They may look to you like the most powerful thing you could face, but from God's perspective, they're really nothing. In every earthly kingdom and so let's just start there god says through isaiah and then he'll give even more immediate hope in just a moment but what should judah do in the face of that word from the lord the end of verse 9 tells us if you do not stand firm in your faith you will not stand at all judah you should trust god's promise and you should trust his power His power to put down armies. His power to change hearts. His plan to do His will. Trust that. Don't trust any plan you can come up with on your own. Not your own ingenuity and your own scheming. If you want to be firm in the face of your enemy, then you have to be firm in your faith. Because your real strength won't come from the strength of any army. It will come from the strength of your God and placing your faith in him. So God is calling Ahaz and us to trust him and not anything that our eyes can see. Now, unfortunately, Ahaz has already decided to trust something other than God. Listen to what 2 Kings 16 tells us. This is the historical narrative in a different book of the Bible. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Ahaz has already decided, I know how I'll thwart the coalition I'll side with the enemy the coalition is trying to defeat. He essentially surrenders to Assyria and says, look, if you spare Judah on your way to Egypt, then I won't join Ephraim and Aram in fighting against you. I'll trust you, Assyria, to deliver me from them. 
And I'll even give you the gold and silver from God's temple and the royal palace to make sure that you keep your end of the bargain. And that's why in verses 10 through 12, when Isaiah offers Ahaz a sign, proof that the Lord will deliver Judah, Ahaz refuses to ask. Verse 11, Isaiah says, Ask the Lord your God for a sign. Whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, Ahaz, ask for whatever you want. There's no limit to what you can ask. You can go beyond the bounds of ordinary human experience. That's probably something at some point in your life you were like, oh, I wish I could just get a sign from God that this is exactly what I need to do. He actually offers it to Ahaz. But Ahaz says, no, I'm good. And he makes it sound so pious. I I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. That's an echo of Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. I believe that's one of the scriptures Jesus cited in his temptation in the wilderness. Ahaz is trying to quote scripture to say, no, you know, I wouldn't want to put the Lord to the test. Don't be fooled. He's not being pious. He's already made his plan. And when God offers him that sign, oh, that's a reminder, that's convicting. That is pointing out to him that his reliance on Assyria is not only unnecessary, it is wrong. He is disobeying God's call to trust God. And instead, he is trusting in human resources. So this is a good point for us all to ask ourselves, what are you facing today? And you think, I can tackle this on my own. I've got this figured out. Friends, I would say you shouldn't tackle anything in life apart from God's promises and God's purposes. That everything should be filtered through those. That those promises and purposes should control your thinking for all of life. And it doesn't mean you need to descend in the anxiety of, you know, does God care what color shirt I wear in the morning? But I mean the direction of your life should be filtered through that grit. So is there an area of life where God is calling you to trust him? Maybe there's something you need to do and fear is keeping you back. Maybe it's something you shouldn't do and fear keeps you from stopping. Friends, that fear can be alleviated by believing what God says in his word. And there are times when we feel tempted to trust something other than God. Those are the times when God's promises will be the most relevant, the most powerful. So where do you need those promises today? That's the first thought. When we need God's promises. Now let's come to the second angle then and look at what we gain from God's promise. In other words, what does he offer us? Well, if we take that risk and trust him, because at times it's risky, what will we find? What foundation will be there to rest on? That's the rest of the story. So Isaiah offers this sign, and Ahaz gives this pious uh, no thank you. Well, despite the protestations, Isaiah thieves, he sees right through the hypocrisy, and he gives him a sign regardless Verses 13 to 14, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God's response to Ahaz's unbelief is to give him the sign of a son. A son who will be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what is this sign? And how is it relevant to Ahaz? And how does it connect to Christmas? Well, on the one hand, the answer seems so simple. Matthew applies this prophecy to Jesus and identifies him as the virgin-born son of God who saves his people from their sins. And that is something we're going to celebrate. But on the other hand, remember, the enemy is at the gate. How does that final fulfillment speak to Ahaz and Judah? Remember what we said just a moment ago? 65 years seems a long time to wait. How about over 700? God is giving this sign in order to assure Ahaz, I will soon deliver Judah from the northern invaders. Are are we thinking there's multiple version births there? How does this sign speak to Ahaz in the moment? And remember, Ahaz has responded with unbelief. So there's going to be a positive aspect here. There's going to be a negative side as well. So how do we make sense of this sign? Well, first, let's consider Isaiah's promise that the virgin will conceive. If I were to read this verse to you from the Revised Standard Version, a translation of about 60 years ago, you would hear this. A young woman shall conceive. And I bet that would sound to a lot of you like an assault on the virgin birth, probably motivated by liberal scholars. Well, if only it were that easy. You see, the fact of the matter is that Isaiah uses a word here that is not the technical term for a virgin. He uses a more ambiguous term that means a young woman of marriageable age. And because of that, some argue, see, Isaiah never prophesied a virgin birth. That's just later Christians rereading the Old Testament. But again, if only it were that easy. You see, while the word Isaiah uses does not technically mean virgin, in all the places where it occurs in the Old Testament, it always refers to an unmarried woman. And in Israelite society, such a young woman would ordinarily be a virgin. And on top of that, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and it predates the New Testament, it translates Isaiah 7.14 with the technical Greek term for virgin. So on the one hand, Isaiah leaves the door open to understand this verse as a reference to an ordinary birth. And I think that's a good thing. And on the other hand, ancient interpreters before the time of Christ saw it as a reference to a virgin birth. So how do you put the two together? Here's how. By seeing that Isaiah is giving a promise with immediate relevance that will have a near fulfillment in his day, but will also establish a trajectory. 
that will start a path, uh, plow a field, we might say, establish a furrow that leads to an ultimate fulfillment in the future. And you actually have both of these ideas right here in the following verses. Look at verses 15 through 16. So Isaiah just promised the birth of the son, Emmanuel. And then he says, verse 15, He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So Isaiah says in these verses, before this child is born and reaches the age of discernment, so to speak, before he knows how to choose uh, the right and reject the wrong, there's certain patterns of behavior in children that are just immaturity and foolishness. That's different from rebellion and choosing evil. And Isaiah says, you know, they reach a point where they should know good from evil, and they can make good choices. Isaiah is saying this, before this child that I promise is born and reaches that age, which would probably be 12 to 13 in that culture, before he hits that age, the kingdoms of Aram and Ephraim will be laid waste. So Isaiah there is, or, or Ahaz, there is no need for you to enter into an alliance with Assyria to deliver you from Aaron and Ephraim. God will take care of those nations. And he will do it soon. Before this child grows up. And by the way, that is exactly what God did. The encounter between Isaiah and Ahaz, it took place in 734 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel, which you read about in 2 Kings, fell in 722 B.C. And those dates are pretty firmly established across the board, regardless of the kind of scholar you read. Within 12 years, God kept his promise. However, because Ahaz wouldn't believe that promise, there was a negative side. So look at verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So God will deliver Judah from Aram and Israel. But Ahaz, since you don't trust me and since you're entering into this alliance with Assyria, I will not deliver you from them because they're going to break that treaty. And they're going to overwhelm you. And you're being short-sighted. You're mortgaging the future because of your unbelief. And God says, that is going to catch up to you. So is that it? Is that the end of the story? God gives a temporary deliverance only to see his people destroyed in the future? Well, on the one hand, Isaiah himself continues to offer deliverance from Judah. Turn to me in faith. And I will deliver you. But because of this pattern, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in our hearts too. This chronic reoccurrence of unbelief, sin, judgment. God must provide a more permanent solution. And that's where the prophecy of the virgin birth comes in. Why did the ancient translators view Isaiah 7.14 and translate it with the word virgin? Because they were working with Isaiah's prophecy as a whole. 
And they could see where this story was going. They could see it much better than Ahaz could. And for example, just a a hint of where the story is going. Listen to Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. They may even be on the very next page of your Bible. They'll be very familiar to us from Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 read, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You notice again familiar language there that sounds like Isaiah 7, the promise of a child, the presence of a son, but this is no ordinary son. This fulfillment is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father And prince of peace. For this king, his reign sees no end. Friends, that's no merely human king. That's God himself coming to dwell with his people by means of a virgin birth. And ultimately, that is the promise we need for what really matters in life. And that's why Matthew, living in the time of Christ as a disciple for, of Jesus, could look back on Isaiah, could look back on the whole of Israel's story and apply these words to Jesus and record the angel's words. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What do we need more than anything else to be rescued from our sins? From the sin of unbelief, from all the sins that move us away from living under Christ's lordship, from all the decisions that take us down the path of folly rather than wisdom. We need God himself to come to us. And turn us around to repent and get on the path that leads to our heavenly home. And that's why we need more than a human to deliver us. We need God himself to set us free from the messes we've made. We need God to be our counselor. We need God to be our power. We need God to be our father. We need God to be our peace. And that's what we gain from this promise that found its ultimate fulfillment. In the first Christmas. So what is God calling us to do in giving us this sign? The same thing he called Ahaz to do years and years ago. Trust him in every circumstance of life. If you will not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And the you in that verse is plural. Same with the promise of the son. I will give you a sign. Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz, but through him to all of Israel, to all of God's people, to us in this room today when life gets tough or when life gets sinful. And especially when we think, all right, I've got that. I can figure this out. I can solve these problems. That is when we turn to God for help. And do not lean 
on your own strength or your own understanding, and that's where you'll find the benefits of this promise that God is with us. So let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gospel, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of one who will save his people from their sins, the virgin-born Son of God whom we adore uh, and worship and celebrate during this season. And we give you our thanks for that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus' heart. And we just pray again, Lord, forgive us when we don't trust him. When his presence and his coming doesn't set the, the whole boundary or horizon of our expectation. And I pray for us as a church, make us a trusting people. A people who follow that ancient wisdom of Proverbs 3, to lean not on our own understanding, but to commit our way to you and to follow you. And I pray we'd experience the calm hearts that, that flow from trusting in you. There can be seasons of worry or fear, but but give us peace because you are our God. And then may the actions that flow from faith, what does life look like when, when it's built on a foundation of trust in you? How will we live? What actions will we do? Lord, by your spirit, produce those in us. Bring forth good fruit. And we'll give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.